ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. Today I am on the last section of the last book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. I will finish up all of my New Testament audios today in this audio. I'm going to call this section, Jesus is Coming Soon, with a capital S, capital O, capital O, capital N. Jesus is Coming Soon, which is a perfect way to cap off this Orthodox Preterist commentary an exposition of the book of Revelation. Our context is this. In the first five verses of Revelation 22, we read about the river of life, which is, of course, the springs of living water of the new covenant salvation that are flowing through the middle of the New Jerusalem, all of which refers to the regeneration and conversion going on in the new covenant church, not the final state, not the some kind of alleged future millennium, but what we have now in the new covenant. In other words, we are at the good part of the book of Revelation. And, and judgment at the beginning, life at the end, and let me reemphasize that even though the book of Revelation is mainly about judgment on what happened back in AD 70, it continues all the way to the future, to the end of time, because it's all about the new covenant. And the new covenant just didn't start back at the first advent. It continues all the way to the second advent. So we begin now in Revelation 22, verses 6 and 7. And he said to me that he is one of the seven bowl angels. He's still been talking. He's been talking all the way back in Revelation 21, 9, where it says, Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride. So that's the same angel. He said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, the words of the words about the river of life <clears throat> that were taken up in the first five verses of Revelation 22. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Now, that angel is probably referring to that same bowl angel that I just referred to. In other words, that angel is referring to himself. The angel said, God sent his angel, and I'm that angel. I thought that perhaps, I didn't read this in a commentary anywhere, so take this with a grain of salt, that it could be his messenger, because angel can be translated as messenger, so God sent his messenger, which would be Jesus. But anyway, we'll just take it as being that bold angel. The Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges commentary says, the angel is the same angel as in six other verses in Revelation. Let me run through these real quick to show you how this, this bold angel one of the seven angels who had a bowl of judgment, a plague in his hand, is he's mentioned a lot in Revelation. Revelation 17.1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Revelation 19.9, then he said to me, right, blessed are those invited to the married feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, well, it doesn't mention the angel there, it just says he, but according to the Cambridge commentary, that's that same angel. Revelation 21.9, then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride. Revelation 22, 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord God, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel. That's the verse we're on now. Revelation 22, 6. Revelation 22, 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I found, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. And that's probably the same bowl angel that was mentioned two verses earlier, if indeed it was the bowl angel. Revelation 22:16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. Well, Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges could be right. I'm not sure it's not talking about Jesus in some of these instances. Now, of course, in Revelation 21:9, it's, it's explicitly says one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, and that would not be Jesus. 
It's a minor point, and I've beat it to death. Now let's go to the more important word in this in these two verses, verse six. God sent his angel to show to his bondservants, that's the believers, the things which must soon take place. Not 2,000 plus years in the future, as the futurist would have us to believe, but soon. Now, soon is from the Greek word takos, which is used seven times in Revelation. I'm going to read, for, read them for you very quickly. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Revelation 2.16, I will come to you soon. Revelation 3.11, I am coming soon. Morning or night or noon. Revelation 22, 6. The morning or night or noon is not in there. That's in the, that old Pentecostal hymn that I love so much. Unfortunately, they had the concept a little wrong. Revelation 22, 6. The Lord has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. That's where we are now. The next verse, Revelation 22, 7. I am coming soon. Revelation 22, 12. I am coming soon. Revelation 22, 20. I am coming soon. Folks. The first and the next to the last verse of this book say that Jesus is coming soon. And we don't see it. What part of soon do we not understand? Now, I've emphasized this very much, but I must emphasize again, as I've already mentioned, that this does not mean that all of the events, that every single event of Revelation is to occur soon. Many of them did, because they refer to judgment on the two beasts, the sea beast Rome and the land beast apostate Israel. And that happened back in AD 70 and thereabouts at near the first advent. Well, here's a quote from Alfred Barnes, who is a futurist, and he's trying to point out that that some of the book of Revelation is future, at least, maybe maybe all. I don't know exactly how much of a futurist he is, but he quotes Moses Stewart, who was a 19th century theologian from Wilton, Connecticut. He was a preter, orthodox preterist, and so let's... let's Listen to Barnes quoting Stuart. Even Professor Stuart, who contends that the greater portion of the book refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and the persecutions of pagan Rome, just like I do, admits that the, quote, closing part of the revelation relates beyond all doubt to a distant period and some of it to a future eternity. Yes. So, see, Orthodox preterists are not reductionists. They don't put everything in the eighty seventy. It's obvious that these metaphors in the end, the lake of fire, the great white throne judgment and all that refers to the end of time because the new covenant stretches from the first advent to the end of time. And that's what the book of Revelation about is the new covenant. Moses Stewart continues, if this be so, that some part of Revelation refers to the future, then there is no impropriety in supposing that a part of the series of predictions preceding this may lie also in a somewhat remote futurity. Yeah, see, preterists are reasonable. But I just wonder why futurists, if they want to say that the very end of the book is in the future, and which I agree with, why don't they? Why can't they say that some of the first part of the book is in the past, around AD seventy? Now Jesus has said in these two verses to be coming soon. The and behold, I am coming quickly, as the NESB has it. The Christ, I think Holman Christian Study Bible translates it quickly too, since the futurist dispensationalist abuse the definition of soon. I prefer the word soon here. So we'll look at the ESV. And behold, I am coming soon. The ESV has it. It's from the same Greek word, takos. By the way, let me tell you how the futurists abuse it. They say that Jesus comes quickly when he does come 2,000 plus years in the future. And it just, boom, it happens real quick. So for an analogy, it was like if I told you I was coming to visit you soon, 2,000 years later, I show up. I park the car, I open the door, then I sprint as fast as I can to your front door. So I'm coming quickly, 
2,000 years in the future. And I submit to you that that stretches credulity to the point where I don't want to have anything to do with such a nonsensical interpretation. That's not the way we use language. When we say soon, we mean soon. And quickly obscures that, even though it's a, it's a good, it's an okay translation, because I know what it means. But unfortunately, people hide behind that translation to make John say something he didn't really mean. He meant that Jesus was coming soon. Now, coming, and we see that word coming, and everybody says, oh, that's the second coming of Jesus in time. No, it's not. Let's look at the comings in the book of Revelation. I've got five of them. Revelation 1, 7, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the land will mourn over him, so it is to be. Now, that verse is typically taught, assumed by futurists to refer to the end of time. I submit to you it's talking about eighty seventy. First of all, the word earth there, gay, needs to be translated as land. So we have all the tribes of the land will mourn. When will they mourn? They will mourn when they see their capital city, Jerusalem, destroyed in AD 70. Second place where come is used in Revelation, Revelation 2.5. Remember then how far you, referring to the church at Ephesus, have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, that coming is not at the end of time, obviously. It's talking about taking the lampstand from Ephesus, which is first century, not end of time. Revelation 2.16. So repent, otherwise I will come to you, church at Pergamum, quickly or soon, and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There's that term soon again, and the coming is soon, and it's obviously not at the end of time, because Pergamum is not even in existence at the end of time. Probably it's not even in existence today. Revelation 3.11, I am coming soon. There's that word soon again. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you, Church of Philadelphia, have so that no one takes your crown. So these events to the seven churches, or at least to these three churches of the seven churches of Asia Minor, of Anatolia, these three churches are said to be visited by Jesus soon because he's coming soon. He's not talking about the end of time. Revelation 16:15 Look, I, this is Jesus speaking, am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed, clothed, so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. I've spoken after the six bowls poured out. That verse is ambiguous as to whether the coming is in the future or the past, but the context is the six bowl judgments we've already talked about, the bowl judgments referring to the judgment being poured out on apostate Israel. At any rate, these comings that are quickly, these comings that are soon, Revelation 2.16 and Revelation 3.11, speaking to Pergamum in Philadelphia, that can't be the end of time. Well, if that, if you got clear examples of where coming does not have to be at the end of time, there's nothing that keeps us from positing that comings can be during the first century, not necessarily at the end of time. In verse 7, at the end of the verse, we read this, Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, heeds means not just understand what's going to happen when, and that's the way most of us read the book of Revelation, is it not what's going to happen, but the ethical injunctions in the book of Revelation, we're supposed to pay attention to them and do what they say. Most of those ethical injunctions were to the first seven churches. That's the original intent of the letter. For example, Ephesus was dead orthodox. Thyatira was let heretics in, that kind of thing. Straighten up. That was what's important. Heed. Listen to the words of the book. Don't just speculate about what all the symbols mean. Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, we continue. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Talking about the Jesus appearing to him in the in the vision. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship, well, let's say the angel, 
excuse me, the angel that showed him these things. I'm going to assume it's the angel, one of the seven bowl angels. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Again, there's that word, heed the words, pay attention to them, obey them, worship God. Now, the worship God makes people think that John is worshiping the angel instead of worshiping God, and that's the way it's typically interpreted. Now, this is not the first time in Revelation that John has fallen down at the feet of an angel to worship him. We read in Revelation 19.10, Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And again, there's that same idea. John is so impressed by this angel that he allegedly is falling down at his feet to worship the angel as a god. But there's some problems with that view, as David Chilton points out. John is an apostle who just received a revelation of Jesus Christ. Is he likely going to fall down and worship an angel after he's just seen his risen Lord? And notice the angel never rebuked John for idolatry, which would be natural and logical at this juncture. But he didn't say, John, you're, you're committing idolatry. So... If that's the case, that he's not worshiping the angel, what is he doing? Well, the word for worship the angel is proskuneo, which is, quote, the custom of prostrating oneself before a person and kissing his feet, the hem of his garment, etc. The word is used not only for worship of a god, but also to show reverence due to superiors. Now, let me show you how proskuneo can be used in a non-divine worship sense, but in just a, in a sense of showing respect to one's superiors. Revelation 3.9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, this is in Philadelphia, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship. I will make them to come and proskuneo before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Well, obviously Jesus is not going to ask the synagogue of Satan to commit idolatry by bowing down to worship the Philadelphians, is he? It just means he's going to make them bow down and acknowledge that somebody superior to them. And so then, if this is true, then what the angel is saying, look, John is showing worship to the angel as a superior. He is thinking too low of himself because he is one of the prophets. I am a fellow servant of yours, the angel says, and of your brethren, the prophets. John is a prophet. He's receiving a revelation. Quit. So quit thinking that I'm your superior. I'm your equal. You're my equal. Stand up. Quit de debasing yourself. Quit degrading yourself. So although this verse is usually interpreted as saying John is trenching on God's honor, actually John was trenching on his own honor. And we need to think about, the next, about that the next time we get depressed over how worthless we are. God actually thinks highly of us. We're proud in our flesh, but when we're his children, he elevates us, he exalts us, he makes us to sit at the right hand of God. And there are too many Christians that don't make that transition. That's not being proud when you do that. That's not being arrogant. It's actually being very humble. Because you acknowledge what God has done in you and how much he cares about you and what he thinks about you. This angel is saying, in effect, get up and worship God because you have every right to be in his presence every bit as much as I do. So when he says worship God, he's not saying don't worship me idolatrously, but worship God. What he's saying is get up and worship God because you have every right to be in his presence even as I do. After all, the angel says John is a brother of the prophets. That means John is a prophet. So stand up. I think that's the correct interpretation. It, again, it doesn't really matter. It's a side point, but it's interesting to me. Revelation 22.10, And he said to me, this is the angel, the bowl angel, he said to me, 
to John, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Don't seal it up, because the time is near. Ingus, near. It's near. It's coming soon. The judgments on Israel, apostate Israel, are coming soon. So there's no point in sealing up the book. Going to have to unseal it shortly. Now contrast that with Daniel 12:4, where Daniel is told to seal up the book of his prophecy. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. Many will roam about, and knowledge will increase. That's the time of the end of the of the Jewish kingdom. Eighty seventy, the end of the seventy weeks, and so forth. All of which I'm going to talk about in Daniel. I've got a video on Daniel too, Daniel also, which covers all that. And it's and Daniel wrote in the sixth century B.C. and it finishes up in eighty thirty, eighty seventy, the first advent. You're talking about roughly five hundred years. So yeah, seal that book up. Long time before that's going to happen, but not with. John's book of Revelation, he's writing in the mid-60s, 80s, 70s, he's going to finish it all up. So you're talking about just several years. Now let's focus on this word near, for the time is near. Don't seal up the words of the book of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. What part of near do we not understand, I ask you humbly? The word is related to soon. Angus, near, is used twice in Revelation. Revelation 1, 3b, in the part, second part of the verse 3, the time is near. Revelation 22:10, where we are here, the time is near. So soon and near. Seven instances of soon, two instances of near. That is nine indications that Jesus is talking about the book of Revelation's events unfolding soon. Not 2,000 plus years in the future. Now let's go to verse 11 of Revelation 22. Let the one, this is the angel, the bold angel still speaking to John. He says this, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Now, I must say that when I have read this verse in the past, I thought, what in the world is John talking about? Well, actually, it's not as difficult as you might think. Let's start with filthy. The one who is filthy still be filthy. What John is saying here is the Gentiles, the Romans, and the apostate Jews, the Romans being the sea beasts and the apostate Jews being the land beasts, they've filled up their cup of their iniquity and it's too late. They can't change. Their judgment is set. Nothing's going to turn it away. They've had their chances. They've blown it. They're totally and utterly evil. Their evil is complete and mature. So they're still going to be filthy. It ain't going to change. David Chilton quotes Gary North here in a quote I like, quotation I like, quote, a prayer, this is a prayer that the world may come out black and white so as to be ripe for judgment. Self-consciousness on both sides of the contest is always a prelude to judgment. In other words, it's good versus evil. We say that in our common language. I like that movie because it was good versus evil. No shades of gray. And here there were no shades of gray. You murdered Jesus you're filthy, and you're going to stay filthy until your judgment comes. Now let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. The persecuted Christians just need to persevere in being who they are. They're holy, so keep practicing righteousness until that judgment comes. Now let's turn to Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13. Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. And I emphasize according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, the speaker here in the vision switches from the bowl angel, assuming it was the angel with the bowl of plagues. It's now Jesus speaking. Look, I, Jesus, am coming soon. So Jesus is now speaking to John. He says, I'm coming soon. 
there's our phrase again, coming in judgment, not physically at the end of the world, as I've already said, and soon I've beat that with a dead horse, like a dead horse, won't say it anymore, but soon, what part of that do we not understand, soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. Now the reward, according to his work, this is a reference to the Mount of Transfiguration. We go to Matthew 16, verses 27 and 28, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. I emphasize according to what he has done, or according to his work. Verse 28, Matthew 16, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here, he was standing at the Mount of Transfiguration, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now this was spoken six days before the Mount of Transfiguration actually happened. Now what I'm going to show you is that when Jesus says, For well, the Son of Man is going to come, and reward each according to what he has done, he's talking about AD 70. He is not talking about the end of the world, and and he's not talking about six days later at the Mount of Transfiguration he's going to come, as some people say, but he's talking about AD 70, and this is fairly easy to prove. It can't be the end of the world judgment because Jesus said some of you will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming. Some of you will not taste death? You mean some will stay alive 2,000 plus years later at the second return of Jesus? That's absurd. So it can't be end of the world judgment. It can't be the Mount of Transfiguration, which happened six days later. Why would Jesus say, some of you are not going to die in six days? Well, of course they're not going to die. All of them aren't going to die in six days. And besides, what kind of a reward is going to be handed out at the Mount of Transfiguration? He says, I'm coming to give you a reward. What reward? Now, the futurists have a way of trying to get around that problem. It's at least the futurist dodge that I've examined is so silly. I'm not even going to bring it up here. This is the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 16, 27, 8. Jesus is predicting not his Mount appearance, not his experience at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's not going to come to the Mount of Transfiguration in six days. He's talking about coming at the end of time with his angels to reward each according to what he has done. Excuse me, he's talking about coming in eighty seventy, not the end of time. So. How do we tie that to Revelation 22, 12, and 13? By that phrase, according to his work, I am coming soon to repay each person according to his work. That's Revelation. Here's Matthew at the Mount of Transfiguration. I'm going to come to reward each according to what he has done, according to his work. The phraseology is exactly the same. I'm going to come to reward you according to your work. And what he's saying is don't, don't think out during the persecution that's coming before 8070 as in the Olivet Discourse, all that persecution that was coming. They're going to chase you from synagogue to synagogue and all that. So now we have Revelation 22, verses 12, tied to AD 70, when Jesus is coming soon. In verse 13, Revelation 22, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Jesus establishes the new covenant. That's the Alpha and the Omega, the last letter in the Greek alphabet. That's the consummation, the end of the new covenant in the final state. That matches our theme that the new covenant is talked about all the way in the book of Revelation from the first to the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation 22, verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Now, that's an easy metaphor here, wash their robes. That means to make themselves clean. It's a symbol of moral purity, to be washed clean. The KGV has, blessed are those who do his commandments. Okay, that's the same thing, being clean or righteous. So they may have the right to the tree of life. The tree of life is Jesus. We saw that in verse 2 of Revelation 22. 
Talking about the river of life running down the middle of the city, the New Jerusalem's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, healing for the nations, 12 kinds of fruits. That's Jesus healing the nations. So we have the right to the tree of life. And we're blessed because we've washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb. And we may enter by the gates into the city. That's the New Jerusalem, the symbol of the New Covenant Church. We have a right to enter the church. So do Christians today have the right to the tree of life? The answer is yes, do Christians today. Now, again, the futurists take verse 14 and shove that off into the future, and so we kind of lose the blessing today. But listen to Revelation 2, 7. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, he was writing to seven existing churches in Anatolia, and he says, I will give you the right to eat the tree of life. Do we really think that's talking about 2,000 plus years later? 1 John 5, 5 says this, same John that wrote the book of Revelation. Who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We have conquered the world now. We are by definition overcomers, so we have the right to the tree of life. We may enter into the city. We may enter by the gates into the city. So do Christians today have the right to enter into the New Jerusalem, the church of Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. Revelation 22:15. Outside, this is outside the city, outside the New Jerusalem, this is where the non-believers are, are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So you aren't citizens of the New Jerusalem, you're an unbeliever, and the sins that are listed here are the typical things that unbelievers do. Now, futurists would take this verse and say those who are outside the city are those who are in hell at the end of time. No, it means those who are non-believers now, during the church age. Who are these dogs, by the way? Dogs in the New Testament or in the scriptures, I should say, all the scriptures, they're scavengers that are regarded with disgust and revulsion. They're not sweet little Oliver or Fido. The little old lady has curled up at her at her feet as she knits. No. Now, I've been accosted with some nasty dogs, and I'm telling you, there is nothing more frightening. I could tell you the story now. They curl your hair. It's, it, it's, it took 10 years off my life, several of these instances of confrontations with dogs while I was running. And so I understand when John talks about dogs, he's not talking about nice dogs. Proverbs, let's go through the scriptures here and see how dogs are referred to in the scriptures. Dogs are compared to fools, to sodomites, male prostitutes. They're referred to, they're used to describe unclean Gentile nations. They're used to describe unbelieving Jews, the false circumcision. Not pleasant. And that's the type of people who are going to be outside the city. Where are they called fools? Proverbs 26:11. As a dog returns to its vomit, so also a fool repeats his foolishness. Great proverb. Dogs like to lick up their vomit for some reason. I guess they get hungry when they throw up. Sodomites. Deuteronomy 23:18. This is the Holman Christian Study Bible. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Actually, that's not the Holman Christian Study Bible. I've got the wrong site there. That's another version. I forgot which one it is. I think it's the ESV. The Holman Christian Study Bible has male prostitute for dog. That's what they called male prostitutes back then. Dog. The Greek is literally dog. It's a male prostitute. The fee of a prostitute is the wages of a male prostitute. You don't use whore's wages or male prostitute's wages to pay your vows. 
Because if you do that, if you're a male, you're a dog. Unclean Gentile nations, Mark 7, 26, 27, and 28. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she was asking him, asking Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. To the dogs. Who's Jesus referring to there? The Gentiles. She was a Gentile. And he was saying, hey, man, the dogs don't eat at the table. The Jews eat at the table. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So there the word dog was referring to a Gentile, which, of course, the Jews believed were unclean. Now, in Philippians 3, 2, we see how unbelieving Jews, the false circumcision, are referred to as dogs. Philippians 3, 2, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. So what was John referring to in verse 15 when he said, outside of the dogs? I don't know. Could have been any or all of those terrible people. Fools, sodomites, unclean Gentiles, or unbelieving Jews. Revelation 22:16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you. That's probably one of the bold judgment angels. I've already gone through these seven Six verses in Revelation where it's probably this bold angel that's being taught, that's that's speaking to Jesus. I'm not going to go through that again. It's a minor point. But one angel has been sent to you, to John. Actually, though, the you there is plural. So Jesus is saying, I've been sent to you and your audience, which is the seven churches in Anatolia. I have sent to you, to you guys, to y'all, John and all of your and all of the churches that you're ministering to over there. I've sent my angel to testify to you. What is he testifying about? That I am the root in the descendant of David, the bright morning star, and also all the other stuff that Jesus has spoken about in his vision. Now, the first question that arises is how can Jesus be a root and a descendant of David at the same time? Well, let's look. This is sort of an interesting question. So let's look at three verses that portray Jesus as a root and a branch. Isaiah 11.10 says this, On that day the root of Jesse, Jesse is David's father, on that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. That's referring to Jesus. So Jesus is referred to as the root of Jesse. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. Zechariah 6.12 says, You are to tell him, this is what the Lord of armies says, Here is a man whose name is Branch. This is a famous Branch prophecy. He will branch out from his place and build the Lord's temple. So Jesus is said to be a root, and he's said to be a branch. Revelation 5, 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So now we see that Jesus is referred to as a root and a branch. Now, how do we put all that together? Well, here's some options. Option one, Jesus is the ancestor of David. Option two, Jesus is the descendant of David. And option three is, he's both the ancestor and the descendant of J David. So, let's take option one. Jesus is the ancestor of David. That would have to be Jesus in his divine form, of course. And in support of this option, I've got a quote from Ellicott's commentary. He, Jesus, is David's Lord and David's son. Actually, that shows him being ancestor and descendant. But at least he, Ellicott says he's David's Lord. So he leaves open the possibility that Jesus is the ancestor of David. Well, how can he be the ancestor of David? Because he created David as God in his divine form. Second option, 
Jesus is the descendant of David. Well, how can he be the root of David and the descendant of David? Remember, John says in Revelation 22:16, I am the root and the descendant of David. Well, root sounds like ancestor, not descendant. Well, if you take root this way, as a branch that springs from the root of David, then that makes Jesus a descendant, not an ancestor. Let me give you a quote from Albert Barnes, who says this. He says concerning root, quote, Not the root in the sense that David sprang from him, as a tree does from a root, but in the sense that he was the root shoot of David, or that he himself sprang from him as a sprout starts up from a decayed and fallen tree, as of the oak, the will of the chestnut. The meaning then is not that he was the ancestor of David or that David sprang from him, but he was the offspring of David, according to the promise in the scripture that the Messiah should be descended from him. No argument then can be derived from this passage in proof of the pre-existence or the divinity of Christ. So if we read it the way Barnes does, it will read like this. Revelation 22:16. I am the root, the descendant, and the descendant of David. He's just repeating himself. I am the root of David because from David's family I'm a branch that springs up from the root. And if you cut, cut a tree stump, I've done that here. I live in the country. You cut a tree down, and by God, in the next year there's branches trying to grow from that stump. And so if you look at it that way, that's Jesus who is is springing up from David, his ancestor. So David is so Jesus is the descendant of David, his ancestor, because he's the root. He's the root shoot. He's the shoot. The branch that shoots out from the root of David. Option number three. He's both the ancestor and the descendant of Jesus. This is from Ellicott. He who is the branch is also the root. So the branch would be the root shoot, the ancestor. Excuse me. The root shoot is the descendant because he's the, 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 the shoot is branching out from the stump and so therefore is a descendant. So he who is the branch is also the root. That would mean the descendant of David. He is the one who was David's Lord, that's the ancestor, and the true sourcing ground of all power to David and David's tribe, and of all who look to him and not to themselves for strength. So all of that's a little bit complicated, but to answer the question, how can Jesus be the root of David and the descendant of David at the same time? Well, to me, it's just as easy to say Jesus in his divine nature created David. That makes him the root, not the, necessarily the root shoot, but the root. That makes him the ancestor. And then Jesus in his human nature was in David's family tree, so he was the descendant. But again, you don't have to take it that way. You can say that the root is not, Jesus is the root, doesn't make Jesus the ancestor of David. If you say Jesus is the root shoot, the branch that comes out of the root, well, then he's the descendant looked at from the, the root aspect also. Again, this is a minor point, but it's a little bit complicated. So I've spent some time on it. Jesus also tells tells John and the churches that Jesus is the morning star. He said that in Revelation 2.28 also. Just as I have received this from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. The overcomers get Jesus. We get Jesus. I give him the morning star. I give him the morning star. Jesus gives, him, gives us himself. We go down to Revelation 22.17. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wished take the water of life without cost. All right, this verse is a little confusing. I'm going to give you two options. The spirit and the bride say, come, that's going to be come number one, and let the one who hears say, come. So the spirit and the bride say, come, that's come number one, and then the hearers of 
what the Spirit and the Bride say. They say, come also. So you've got two come. Spirit and the Bride say, come, and then the hearers say, come. Well, who is this addressed to? When the Spirit and the Bride say, come, who are they addressing that to? Here's option number one. They're addressing Jesus. The Holy Spirit and the church say, come, Lord Jesus. Come to me. Come marry me. Come to me. And then Jesus hears that, and then he says, okay, I'm going to say come too. I'm going to say come to all who are unsaved and want salvation. The ones who are thirsty, let them come, take of the water of life. That, to me, makes the most sense. There's another way you can take it. You can say the spirit and the bride say come to all the unsaved, and then all the unsaved come to salvation, and then they turn around and say come to the rest of the people who aren't saved, and then you come into salvation. I like option one number better because the Spirit and the Bride are saying, Come, Lord Jesus, marry me, the Bride, marry me. That makes sense. And then once Jesus comes to the church, then he turns around and says to everybody else in the world, Come, get saved. If you're thirsty, take the water of life without cost. Now, the water of life, that's an obvious reference to salvation. One more indication that the book of Revelation has to do with the establishment of the new covenant church. Not talking about the end of the world. And of course, when, we, when the unsaved take the water of life, they do it without cost. They can't pay God for their salvation. There's not enough price in the world they can pay for salvation. Jesus has to pay the full price for us. We go now to Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And by golly, there were a lot of plagues in the book of Revelation. Verse 19. And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Now, if God's going to give plagues to people and take away their part in the tree of life, if somebody messes with this book, adds to the words of this book, corrupts it, in other words, ooh, Jesus took that very seriously. Now, I don't believe he was talking to Christians, but I will say this. He took it seriously enough that where it makes panmillennialism a suspicion, suspect philosophy to me. I'm just going to throw my hands up in the air and I don't understand this book. I understand why people feel that way. I did it myself for 30 years and I feel like I understand it now. But just to say, well, I don't know what it means. I don't care. That's, that's, uh-uh. If God is so serious about this book that he's going to curse somebody who messes it up, that tends to make me think that God thinks very highly of this book and he's very concerned with it. And maybe we ought to be too. Now, here's an old Calvinist Arminian problem here. God will take away his part from the tree of life. Does that mean a Christian, if he adds or subtracts from the book of Revelation, he will lose his salvation? No. Here's a quote from Albert Barnes. Quote, the meaning is not that his name had been written in that book, but that he would take away the part which he might have had or which he professed to have in that book. In other words, God's not going to let you participate in the tree of life if you screw up this book. Now, I think that it's more likely he's going to be talking to non-Christians anyway. Why would a Christian screw up the book? In fact, Barnes says it's likely to be a hypocritical professing Christian who adds or subtracts from the book. Here's his quote. Most likely to be done by those who profess to be Christians and who suppose that their names were in the book of life. In fact, most of the corruptions of the sacred scriptures have been attempted by those who have professed some form of Christianity, like Marcion. Infidels have but little interest in attempting such changes and but little influence to make them received by the church. It is most convenient for them, as it is most agreeable to their feelings, to reject the Bible altogether. And I think that's true, because Barnes says most it's all, it's people inside the church, the Rob Bells, the Andy Stanleys. It is those type of people who screw up the scriptures, the people who profess to be Christians. 
and I'm not saying Rob, Bill, and Andy Stanley aren't Christians. I don't mean to say that, but it's people within the church who are most likely going to try to corrupt the scriptures. And if they do, and they're not saved, they're not going to get saved. God's going to take away any chance that they have to partake of the tree of life, the tree of life being Jesus. We go to Revelation 22, verses 20 through 21. He who testifies to these things, that's all the things in the book of Revelation that we've just been reading about, says, surely I am coming soon. Oh, there's my favorite word in the book, soon, S-O-O-N. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We're at the last two verses of the New Testament, last two verses of the book of Revelation. Jesus says, I am coming soon. Now, John started out the book of Revelation saying he was coming soon. Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And there's our time indicator that tells us how to interpret this book. Now, I've said it many times in this audio series on the book of Revelation. I've listed the seven times that soon, takos, is used in Revelation. I'm going to do it again. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Revelation 2.16, I will come to you soon. Revelation 3.11, I am coming soon. Revelation 22.6, the Lord has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Revelation 22.7, I am coming soon. Revelation 22.12, I am coming soon. Revelation 22.20, which is where we are now, I am coming soon. And of course, we shouldn't forget the related word engus, near, Revelation 1.3, second part of the verse. The time is near. Revelation 22.10. Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. That's not 2,000 plus years in the future, folks. So we see in the very first book, first verse of the book of Revelation, we have Jesus coming soon. And here in verse 20, the next to the last verse of the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Why can't we get that through our heads? How many times have I read the book of Revelation through a futurist lens and completely ignored those words soon? That's why I'm emphasizing them so much. It's because there's too many people doing that and ignoring the plain sense of the Scripture. You want to be literal about the book of Revelation? Well, then take that word soon and take it literally. And you'll be happy because you'll be able to understand this book. You'll get blessed by the book. You don't get blessed by a book you don't understand. I've often thought of a metaphor People might say, well, how can you? You're just a nobody, Dan. Try to even the great doctors of the church would never be able to understand this book. Well, think of this analogy. Let's think you got a big iron door that's padlocked with a big chain and a big iron padlock. And some big, strong, muscle-bound giant comes along and tries to open the door with the wrong key. He can't get, he can't get the door open. He pulls and he huffs and he puffs and he finally gives up and throws his hands up and says, I'm a pan millennialist. I'm out of here. But then just some old skinny guy comes walking down the road and he looks by the side of the road and he picks up a key and it's the right key that opens the padlock. He goes in there, he sticks it in the padlock and opens it and he goes in. So he doesn't have to be a big muscle-bound guy. He's got the right key. Well, the reason that Martin Luther and John Calvin and whoever else and Tim LaHaye and how Lindsay have not been able to understand this book is because they've been using the wrong key. The key is called Orthodox Preterism. Stick it in the keyhole, folks, and unlock the treasures of the book of Revelation. Look at all that worship that's in there. Look at all that dominion and victory for you, the Christian. You will be blessed by reading this book. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with the book of Revelation and the New Testament. My plans are to shortly start on Old Testament audios to... Do the same thing with the Old Testament that I did with the New Testament. Have an audio for every 
verse of the Old Testament. I hope I can do that before I pass on. And so we'll see you then, and I hope you enjoyed this audio.